The city of Ephesus at the end of the first century AD must have been something to behold. Situated along a prosperous trade route that stretched from Rome in the west all the way out to the great civilizations built up along the shores of the Euphrates River in the east, Ephesus became a place into which the wealth of nations poured. You can go there today and find still the outlines of the once colossal marketplaces and extravagant shopping districts of that ancient city. You can find in that place the, the ruins of magnificent townhomes and mansions in what had been called the metropolis of Asia. You can venture into the reconstructed, luxurious public baths and steam rooms adorned in marble that once must have been the envy of many in that time. And you can walk down the very streets, now pockmarked with age that had once been smooth avenues. See the traces of, of sidewalks and, and the facades of houses and and evidence of, of buildings that had once been marked by intricate mosaics and fabulous carved reliefs and beautiful marble statuary. You will find even now in Ephesus of today the rebuilt facade of what had once been one of the great libraries of the ancient world. You can walk into an amphitheater that sat 45,000 people with acoustics so perfect that you can stand at the front to this day, whisper, and be heard all the way at the back. I know, I've done it. And yet, as magnificent as those attributes of the city were, it was the temple of Artemis or Diana that attracted thousands of visitors every single year. It was the cult of, of Diana for which the city was most proudly known around the ancient world. And though the temple is no longer standing now, it's placed nothing more than a muddy swamp. It was once one of the great wonders, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That's an interesting coincidence, isn't it? One of the seven wonders. When you consider the word of our Lord Jesus Christ, to those entities which he deems among the wonders of eternity. Once upon a time, there grew up in Ephesus a church a church not known for its steeple and pews as for its people and the good news. And the book of Revelation says that the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, symbolic of, of Jesus walking amongst the churches of ancient Asia, knew that congregation in Ephesus intimately as he knows his church wherever it gathers. And in the intimacy and intensity of that knowledge, Jesus speaks to the Ephesian church three words of specific commendation 
of value, no doubt, to them and to other believers, even today. What was it about the Ephesian church which Jesus celebrated? Well, for one thing, Jesus commended the good deeds of his people there. I know your deeds, he says, your, your hard work. This was no casual congregation of spectators, but rather a community of committed servants. We can imagine each member of that community of faith taking on a particular vital role in the body life of the place. We could picture how some would have would have taken joy in visiting the sick and others in caring for the elderly and others still in instructing the young and others in providing for the poor. Each person's gifts brought to bear, linked together in the purposes of God and those who labored in unsung tasks of service walked joyfully alongside those who proudly sang out for all to hear the song of the faith. Yet each person's labor Diligence, seen and esteemed by God. But there was a second attribute of the church that Jesus commended. He spoke of the patient endurance of the Ephesian Christians. As more people became followers of Jesus Christ in that city, the pagan cult of Diana began to decline. And what had been a booming tourist trade in silver replicas of the Artemisian, the temple to Diana, and and little good luck charms called Ephesus charms took a precipitous drop in sales. So infuriated and hostile over time became the silversmiths of Ephesus that were told by Paul and the night, or rather by Luke in the 19th chapter of Acts that the silversmiths rose up, sparked a riot against the Christians of that day. And because we know uh, how Christians are sometimes treated in other parts of our world to this day, We can only imagine how the businesses of believers may have been boycotted, children ostracized from play circles, adults outright assaulted, but the believers in Ephesus had not given up. I know your perseverance, says Jesus. You may feel that you're forgotten in the midst of the toil and the pain of this time, but I know your perseverance, for you have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Alongside the endurance, the good deeds of this people, Jesus also commended their doctrinal and moral purity. You have this in your favor, says Jesus. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
Exactly who these Nicolaitans were, scholars are not entirely sure. The word Nicolaos literally means destroyer of the people. But whoever these people were, Christ applauds the Ephesians for discerning the error of their teaching and for rejecting their immoral practices. Now, it is my conviction that the church of Jesus Christ today must be marked with these three same crucial attributes. We need to be a church wherever the church meets that is not about spiritual consumption, about spectating, but about self-giving service ministry. The church today needs more people who are willing to endure hardships and opposition as they patiently strive to advance God's purposes through the church, in the workplace, in the home, in the circle of our social relationships. And the church also needs people who know God's Word so intimately and fully that they have the capacity to discern the distortions and the imbalances that are often peddled as spiritual truth or as moral health in our time. But there is one more quality. There is one primary quality. Mark of the church desperately needed, without which even the aforementioned virtues are destined to degrade over time. And it is what Jesus saw as a need in the church at Ephesus and was what he was getting at when following those three commendations, he also issued a sharp word of challenge to the believers at Ephesus. Do you remember what he said? Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. Now we must assume from these words that there was a time when the Ephesians had enjoyed a relationship with Christ that can only be compared in human terms to that wondrous season we associate with first love. On just a personal and individual level, uh, uh, let me just tell you how I can recall those wonderful, giddy first days in love with my wife, Amy. I I, I mean, I can remember times when, when I was just awestruck that this amazing, gorgeous, otherwise intelligent, vibrous, vibrant female loved me of all people. 
And the more I basked in the love that this remarkable woman had for me, the more the very reality of her affections for me just reoriented and inflamed my heart. And I not only loved her more, but her love for me overflowed the container of my life until it began to alter my behavior and my attitudes towards other people, and I was just singing in the rain and shaking hands with my worst enemies, and for just a short season of time, I was almost tolerable to be around. As you can see, that season passed. At a much more fundamental level, at a much more extraordinary level, The believers at Ephesus must have had a moment in their lives like that. As many of you will too. There came a moment when it first penetrated their consciousness. Who loved them? When the gospel suddenly broke through the intellectual defense systems and settled down into the bottom of their heart and they were totally awestruck by the wonder of who had descended from the glory of eternity for the express purpose of finding them. And they knew in the depths of their being that this one had given his life upon a criminal's cross to save them, them. That he had flung open the, the doors of his father's house and heart that they might be included. That he had poured out his spirit to empower them. That he had given them his word to, to guide them through the labyrinthine paths of this world that he had called into being a whole new kind of family that might embrace and companion them. And the awareness of that staggering reality simply filled and overflowed the container of their lives. And as long as that first love was present to them in their view, their lives could just not be the same anymore. And inspired by the love that Christ first had for them, they responded to him with love. They longed to listen to him, to know him more deeply, to go where he went, to, to to honor him, to please him, to glorify him in all of the ways we want to for that first love in our life. And they found themselves almost helplessly wanting to care about the people he cared about and to treat other people, even the ones on a human level they struggled with, as he had treated them. And one of their pastors, the apostle John himself, summed it all up in this way. Now we love because he 
first loved us. The importance of this first love cannot be overstated in the Christian life. And it is underlined again and again throughout the scriptures. The greatest commandment, says Jesus, is not to work diligently. It is not to endure patiently. It is not to purify doctrinally. It is to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And in that communion with God, that Eden-like walk with God, we'll find ourselves helplessly loving our neighbor, rediscovering love for ourselves as he's loved us. And if we do not have a daily awareness of that radical love with which we have first been loved in Jesus Christ, then all of our ethics, our deeds, all of our psychology, our capacity to endure patiently, all of our theology, our doctrine, will simply disintegrate in time. You see, without a recurrent view of the loving grace that God has given us, without an understanding of how huge a break God has cut us, then in time our our ethical deeds will embody less and less and less of the character of Christ and will become instead merely acts of civility or self-justification or dogged duty. And without a personal conviction ever burning within us of the conquering love at the heart of the universe, that then even our psychological endurance in the face of life's pressures and pains will either disintegrate or else become in time just a self-righteous or bitter drudgery. And unless a vision of the towering love of God in the cross of Jesus Christ fills our vision, is at the center of our theology, then our devotion to the truth will quickly degrade into an arrogant judgmentalism instead of a humble discernment. These principles apply across the board in life. In our marriages, in our parenting, in our business relationships and social contacts. For to paraphrase the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, We can do all sorts of noble deeds in these places. We can persevere in our faith. We can have all kinds of head knowledge. 
But unless God's first love for us is alive in the center of our being, is rooting us to something solid, then it's just a slippery slope that ends in nothing worthwhile or lasting in the end. And obviously this slide has begun to occur for the Christians at Ephesus. Though they probably didn't even think about it till this message came to them. And sometimes we don't think about it when we need to hear this message, when I know I do. But that's why there's such good news here. It's because he doesn't just leave us, this Jesus, with challenge. He gives us a way out. And in the closing verses of this text, Jesus gives to believers everywhere a three-step rescue plan from this loss of first love syndrome. To put it simply, Jesus commands us to remember, to repent, and to resume. First, we must remember the heights from which we have fallen. We must allow our mind's eye to to lift from the day-to-day and recall those mountaintop moments. They may have just been a moment when we were slayed by an awareness of the awesome love of God. And we must aspire to live on that mountain more often. And with God's grace and help, we can. Secondly, we must repent, Jesus says. We must confess that we have too often measured our righteousness in terms of our good deeds and our acts of will and our pure doctrines and not enough on the basis of whether the love of Christ overflowed our lives. And it is appropriate to ask forgiveness of God and one another. And I ask your forgiveness where I have failed. And finally, Christ calls us to resume living. Do the things you did at first, he says. Go back to listening. Go back to trusting. Go back to to serving. Go back to embracing. Go back to reaching out to the world and reaching down to one another. Go back to doing the things you first did when you dared to believe in me, for Christ is the Lord of new beginnings. My friends, a great deal rests upon our response to Christ's commandment here. And Jesus makes that clear with a concluding warning and promise. The warning is this. If we do not repent, the light is taken away. The role the church has as a city on a hill, as a light to the nations, as a lampstand, is extinguished because his love is the light. But there is also here a promise as splendid as the warning is sober. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, who overcomes the tendency to dwell in these things instead of the love of Christ, to that individual I will give the right to eat from the tree of life itself. 
in the paradise of God. Here's the promise. Here's the promise. Remember, repent, resume. And we can enter Eden again. The communion with him and one another can be restored. And he gives us the chance in the church to taste here and now the first fruits of that kind of amazing love, which we'll one day truly see never has an end. May it be so.